1995, a young man calls the Art Bell Show Coast to Coast AM, claiming to have created a time machine. In 1997, he disappears without a trace. You're listening to the Mysterious Brews Podcast, and tonight we bring you the case of Mad Mike Markham. Don't listen to that. Don't call yet. We will get to a portion of the program, um, I hope, where Mike will take questions, but that won't be now, so don't waste your time. Let's uh, go to a secret location somewhere in the country and say, Mike, welcome to Midnight in the Desert. Yeah, it's been a, been a long time, Art. <laughs> <laughs> a long time, 18, 20 years ago, right? The first interview and then 18 years ago? Yep, something like that. Something like that. All right. Uh, gee, Mike, it's hard to know where to begin with you. Even back then it was hard. Um, you connected, I think, with us. Probably we were doing an, like an open lines thing on time travel. Is that how we got together? Um, it's been so long I hardly remember. That was probably it. I remember, right, somebody faxed you a, a newspaper article, oh, and right. then you that's basically right. hunted me down. So. That's right. I hunted you down like a dog. Okay. Um, so Welcome to a deep, dark, dank, moist basement somewhere in the bowels of Georgia. So, yeah, we're a little behind this week. I was kind of under the weather, had some family issues. So we are uh, getting a late jump on this week's episode, but well, you know, you were probably just recovering from that big victory y'all had Saturday. <laughs> I'll have to admit, Georgia's defense might be legit. They showed out. I'll tell you that. I, they uh, they have moments of greatness, and they also have moments of what in the hell are y'all doing? Well, that crowd noise, by golly, it had to help because. It was insane. Yeah, eight false start penalties. Yeah, it registered as the loudest college football stadium ever. I know that they had put out a um, plea in Athens to season ticket holders not to sell their tickets, even though if you had lower-level seat tickets, it was going for as much as a Super Bowl ticket was last year. Yeah, it's the most expensive college football game ever. Like People on my Facebook were selling on – Lowest I saw was nine hundred a piece. The lowest I saw that you could buy, like on StubHub or whatever, was five hundred dollars, and that was the very top row of the upper deck, just to say you were there. And I was like, "Now, nope. yeah. CBS does a pretty good coverage, you know, with them cameras." So I'm gonna sit right here and drink a lot cheaper beer. Yeah, but anyway, we got us a new patron, Mister Lumi Joe, who was our. I guess I'm still enjoying that beer. What you call it? He is our. Uh, he was benefactor. east. Yeah, our, <laughs> our our beer benefactor. He was eastbound and down and delivered a quite a ton of beer to coach's address, and then he head back on to Texas. But Lumi Joe, it's a ten dollar tier. We've got. Uh, if you're not a member of our patron, please do get on there. We post our episodes early. And we have some great discussions 
amongst our patrons that uh they're pretty good. We um the Arkansas Twofer Morgan Anonymous said that uh she was very frustrated with the whole episode because that Rodney Letterman's friend who left him to go get his blood pressure medicine could exactly tell us who the hell come up with the idea for him to leave him behind and was it a medical emergency, but nobody can seem to find him. Hmm. So, and then coach, I have not told you this, but that video that I posted to our Instagram account of the car that comes, seems like it comes out of nowhere. We've had over 17.6 thousand views. It's been shared 1800 times and there's over 600 comments on it. Wow. Yeah, dude, I, I still can't figure out where that car came from. And the trolls took over about four or five days ago, and they started throwing turnips at the wall. So, Oh, yeah, they they started talking smack to me specifically. Oh, did they? Yeah, on the Instagram saying, you know, I've been kicked in the head too many times. Clearly the car would break. Like, where did it come from? <laughs> like, okay, it breaked. I saw it break, but I didn't see it show up. Yeah, the, anyway. be- the beginning of it, there is some intelligent conversation going on. But anyway, so if you don't have our socials, if you're not a member of our Facebook group page, Coach has some great, great memes on there. The <laughs> the marbling of the <laughs> at the morgue, I, yeah. I probably laughed way too much over that one. <laughs> it's like, ooh, that's really good marbling right there. Everyone else at the autopsy, like, what? <laughs> good shit that was good shit all right so let's do this we have a time travel special for you uh these are not very long stories the first one's longer than the second one but these are just some things that we find very very interesting and this one gained some legs what do you say about Two weeks ago, I kind of saw a couple of things on like TikTok and Instagram Reels. Yeah, I never heard of it until about two weeks ago. So you know, as we do when we find new mysteries we didn't know about, we kind of jump on top of them. So the story go well. The basis of the story goes that a young man called into the Art Bell show and told about how he was building a time machine and art talked to him. And then a couple of years later, he called back in and said that he had completed his time machine. And right after he, the episode in 90, was it 96 or 97? Anyway, shortly after that last episode, he disappears and the internet legend is born. And if you've probably seen it on TikTok, there's a picture of like, looks like a crushed metal tube. And it says that in the 1930s, police found a dead man on a California beach. He was crushed to death in a strange metal tube. The man was unrecognizable, and a mysterious device was found near his body. The caller that told this gruesome tale to Art Bell shortly after the two episodes said that the device looked like a cell phone. Was the man's corpse Mike the Madman Markham? And did he really travel back in time? Had to have, man. Why, I mean, come on. Why else are we doing this? I mean, shit. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we're not going to piss on our own parade. Hell, that'd be crazy. So let's get into who Mike Markham is. In 1995, in Stanbury, Missouri, 
Mike Madman Markham was 21 years old with two years of electrical training under his belt from Rio Grande College in, not Rio Grande, Texas, boys, Rio Grande, Ohio. There's a Rio Grande, Ohio? Yeah. (laughs) What? Yeah, I know. Mike had actually followed a girl he had met in 1993 in Lancaster, Ohio, to Albany, Missouri. Now, Albany is a speck on the map in northwestern Missouri. Quote, she made me a promise to be there for her birthday. I went, and long story short, I ended up staying there before getting my own place in Stansbury, Missouri. I'm sorry, Stanberry, not Stansbury, Stanberry. Just south of Albany sits the little town of Stanbury. So in 1994, Mike moved into a little white house at 401 East 3rd Street. And in that house, Mike's time travel journey began. In December, Mike built a Jacob's Ladder a device that allows electricity to arc between two vertical metal rods. Quote, I'm basically a nerd. I was making a fancy Jacob's Ladder that was started via laser pulses. Basically a fancy laser show, Mike said. He goes on to state that, quote, living in a small town in the middle of nowhere with no internet or cable, you get bored. And some people build models or go fishing, and I build electronic things, end quote. But something happened that he did not expect, and it was something very strange. Now, for those of you that still don't know what a Jacob's Ladder is, basically, I didn't, so I put this in here. A Jacob's Ladder is two parallel parallel wires connected to a transformer. The transformer is at the bottom of the wires, and it creates a potential difference between said wires. The electrons repel each other, so they jump from one wire to try and get as far apart as possible. The spark heats up the surrounding air and... Hot air rises, so the spark rises with it. When the spark gets to the top of the wires, it dies, and a new one starts at the bottom. And it just keeps going over and over and over. Now, the transformer at the bottom can change the voltage going into the device. And if you still are a little electronically ignorant, you probably have several of them there transformers in your home because one of them's one of them little boxes that you plug your phone into that you plug into the wall because it converts that 120 volt to like 9 or 12 so you can charge that phone without blowing it up. <laughs> <laughs> but basically when the Jacob's Ladder is turned on, like I said, the electrons are fed into the wires and then they jump around and the spark's created. The spark can be very hot. So hot that it can be classified as plasma, and eventually it gets so high that there's no power left behind it, and it just fades into the air. Oh, that stuff is wild looking, too, if you've ever seen one. That's yes. scary. It is a little scary, especially a big one, especially one of them big ones. Now, a device, cre- the I'm sorry, not a device, but the device that Mike had created a ball of heat the size of a dime that suddenly floated steadily in the air above the ladder. Quote, after a few pulses, the laser somehow got stuck in continuous mode. This, in turn, made the arc stick at the bottom of the electrodes. I noticed right above the arc, there was the usual heat shimmering, but what was unusual about it was it was circular, a sphere-shaped instead of just a random heat signature. Not knowing what to think, Mike picked up a screw from the kitchen table and tossed it into the little shimmering sphere. Quote, It vanished, then reappeared a few feet away. I thought, okay, that's odd. 
So I did it two more times to make sure I wasn't hallucinating. And the same thing happened both times. The screw disappeared and reappeared a few feet away. About the time he thinks, damn, I got to get this on video, the laser burst into flames as it was not meant to be constantly on the power that it was running at. Mike sat back and wondered what he had done. Quote, at first I considered simple light bending or invisibility, he said. Quote, that idea was discarded after I realized that I would still hear the screw drop and it reappeared silently. He could only think of one other option. Time warping was really the only possibility I could think of that fit the observations that I just had. So it's time to scale this puppy up. And he's like, I got to try it again. So he decides that his second Jacob's Ladder experiment would not be confined to his kitchen table. Quote, I decided without much forethought to scale this up a hundred times. And what followed is still all over the internet and the newspapers. End quote. Now, Mike figured that if he had built a time machine, building another tabletop machine would be futile. He had to build something large enough to go through himself. Quote, I decided to borrow pole transformers from the power company in King City that were just sitting outside of a substation fence unused. Newspapers in 1995 would claim that the transformers were behind a padlock fence. Mike said that couldn't be farther from the truth. Quote, I would have never been able to lift them over the fence, six of them, and they weigh 250 to 350 pounds each. Mike got the Transformers one by one to his little white house in Stanbury, and over the next few weeks, he hooked a few of them up. Sheriff's deputies arrested him soon after he hooked a couple of them up. (laughs) Gentry County Sheriff Eugene Lupfer remembers working on the incident. Quote, he stole some Transformers. He had them hooked up in his house, and he was going to make a time machine, end quote. I mean, you go, I don't know, like just stating that on record. Just, I know. I mean, right? that, that's that's a sheriff you can get behind right there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, he's just going to make himself one of them our time machines. You know, boys will be boys and all. And we just, you know, we can't have that going on in Stanbury. <laughs> <laughs> Now, the Transformers were each capable of producing anywhere from 12,000 to 76,000 volts. And when Mike flipped the switch, the people of Stanbury knew something was wrong. Quote, when he turned it on, the houses for blocks went dim, Sheriff Lupfer said. Terry Raymond, Stanbury city manager and lifelong resident, worked in the city's utility department when Mike made headlines across the country in 1995 and was one of the first people at Mike's house. Quote, neighbors called it in. It's a wonder he hadn't blown the whole block up. He had a transformer sitting right there in his front room. The one he was supposed to be building his time capsule with was right there on the back porch. He had that Jacob's ladder hooked up, end quote. Now, the house now sits empty at the corner of Elm and 3rd Streets. Raymond said that Mike might have been the last person to ever live there. At the time of his arrest, Mike was ready to start buying parts and build a new laser for the man-sized machine. Quote, the power drains on the grid got their attention. I was pretty sure I was headed to prison. They asked me what I was doing with them after they saw the contraption, and I was went ahead and told them the truth. I thought that they didn't take it too seriously. <laughs> really, you think? 
Some of the officers did take it seriously, and that night, Mike's life began a ride of national publicity that still has life on the Internet. Quote, somehow word got out to the AP wire that a Missouri guy was building a time machine. They were probably thinking before that I was just a typical thief out to make some money off the copper. Yeah, copper. Yeah, see? Yeah, see? Yeah. Oh, oh you're talking about the, the metal. Oh, my bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's not in the oven now. Would I turn the light? <laughs> That's my favorite Bugs Bunny of all time. Oh, yeah. When he, Would I throw a lit match? Into, could be, Robert. Could be. <laughs> <laughs> the Gentry County Sheriff's Department arrested Mike on January 29th, 1995, and charged him with a felony. According to the St. Joseph News Press, Mike pled guilty to stealing the Transformers and received... Really? need to steal transformers come on man i think the fact that he stole six of them <laughs> oh well okay yeah two would handle. yeah two might have got you a fine but six that's gonna get you a felony <laughs> <laughs> oh man he got uh five years probation and he had served two months in time before his trial came up but mike moved to nearby saint joseph quote i think he thought he could do it Sheriff Lupfer said he was smart. He was not a dumb guy. He just had this in his head and thought, hey, I'm going to do this again, end quote. So during the time that Mike served in his lovely abode at the Gentry County Jail, the AP story of his arrest appeared in papers from the Kansas City Star to the New York Times. And if you try to find the New York Times article on it, and you've looked at the New York Times more than twice, your ass is stuck behind, that article's stuck behind the paywall. But anyway. Now, television and radio stations interviewed Mike about his time experiments, but it wasn't until he received a telephone call from radio host Art Bell inviting him onto the late-night talk show, Coast to Coast AM, that he gained true national attention. Quote, how Art found out was a few of his listeners from different parts of the country faxed him a few newspaper articles about me. Before I was on, I'd never even heard of Art Bell, as I don't listen to much AM talk radio. Mike had moved to St. Joseph, like I'd said, to find a job after he was released from the old jail cell. Because as he said, there was, quote, not much work in Stanbury, especially when you've been on TV and most people think you are nuts. <laughs> That's where Art Bell found him by telephone in the great city of St. Joseph. Quote, basically, he introduced himself and asked me if I wanted to be on his show. At that point, I'd already been on a few shows and a current affair and extra, so I figured, hell, why not? I had no idea this that his show was about ghosts, UFOs, Bigfoot, con government conspiracies, etc. Now, Art said that his interviews with Mike are among, quote, the greatest he had ever had. In St. Joseph, Mike began to rebuild the time machine, quote, legally. It was here that he met and was befriended by St. Joseph resident Claudia Sanderson. Mike eventually showed Sanderson the new Jacob's Ladder and other equipment in his apartment's kitchen. Quote, it was rather impressive considering he made workable equipment out of spare parts from other items, Sanderson said. Goes on to state that, quote, he turned it on and it made the lights dim quite a bit. Then the accident occurred. 
Now, this is Mike saying, quote, I crashed a chunk of the St. Joseph power grid. A power surge caused a transformer bushing to crack and short circuit. If I recall correctly, 20,000 houses lost power. Luckily, they chalked it up to the heat wave at the time. As I was still on probation, and the probation officer probably would not have approved of my experiments. Fortunately, the power outage couldn't be traced to Mike, but the attention he received from Art Bell's listeners as a result of his March 1995 interview grew overwhelmingly. Mike states, I had to move from St. Joseph because giving my address on Art Bell, I was losing sleep. Literally, people were knocking on my door day and night wanting to time travel. You would not believe how difficult it is explaining this to people who show up at your door wanting to go back to avert some tragic event X number of years ago. People tend to get their knowledge from too much Hollywood and not enough libraries. There was a benefit to this attention, however. Donations of money and equipment began to flow in. Quote, before I moved to Kansas City, I got some capacitors, heavy gauge cables, and whatnot. Honestly, half of it I couldn't really use for my experiments, but took it anyways, as I didn't want to really want to turn down a gift. Mike's landlord had evicted him soon after the power outage, and Mike disappeared for a few months. According to a New York Times story on December 8, 1996, quote, in late September, Mike vanished, and the St. Joseph News Press chillingly, re chillingly reported that he had been evicted from his apartment, allegedly for transporting a cat a block away. Poor cat. Mike resurfaced, taking... <laughs> how did... I mean... Well, this is how, like, shit maybe gets stirred just, up. Maybe, maybe, maybe the cat just ran away really quick. I know. How that's... do you know? Like, how do you even track the cat down again? Well, how do you have, you know, eyes on the cat? I mean, is it a like a neighborhood cat? And then he's, like, a block away? So, I mean, it's not very far for a cat to walk. No, or, I mean, especially if it was running, because you just tried to zap it into the next dimension. Yeah. <laughs> Now, Mike would resurface taking offense with the cat deal. It just ain't true, he said. As for his, quote, gizmo, he plans to test it as soon as he solves the sticky problems of controlling when and where it sends him. Quote, right now, this would only make a good garbage disposal, Mike would tell Art Bell on his December 96 show and said he was at least 30 days away from completing his new time machine. However, even with all the donations that he couldn't refuse, it wasn't until really 1998 that he put his machine through its ultimate test. So he actually uses guinea pigs as guinea pigs. So one of the donations that Mike received was warehouse space, so he wouldn't, quote, blow up his apartment. Quote, that's how I was able to get this off the ground. Mike was given several tons of transformer laminations that could be used for electromagnetic cores, generators, so the KC power and light could breathe a little easier. He was also given liquid helium, cascaded transformers that he, quote, used to make 3 million volts, and the list goes on. Now, the cash donations would equal around $20,000, but they paled in comparison to the value of the donated equipment. He says that I guess if I bought it all myself, it would run into several million dollars at least. So I would have never been able to do this on my own, or at least certainly not in the two to three years 
up to the grand finale. Mike built his final machine high in the air inside the warehouse. Quote, it was far from a simple Jacob's Ladder at that point, he said. When he turned on the machine, the strange heat signature remained, but this time it was four feet across. Now he was ready to test it. Quote, nothing is 100% certain, but I was over 95% sure after a few weeks of guinea pig tests that it was going to work. Standing on a cherry picker high off the concrete floor, Mike tossed his first guinea pig through the shimmering circle. It disappeared. He soon found it wandering in the warehouse parking lot. Could you imagine being a guinea pig in some poor bastard's hand and all of a sudden, poof, you're in the parking lot? <laughs> well, those things are like really prone to like heart attacks and stuff. I know. Like, I'm amazed he like found them alive. Like, I can't remember if it's a Twitter thread or a Reddit thread about people just sharing stories about how their hamsters and guinea pigs just randomly died for almost no reason. So he kept testing guinea pigs. He would toss them into the heat signature. Then he'd go out in the parking lot and he would find them either east or west of the building, but never north or south. Mike figured this had something to do with the Earth's magnetic field. Basically, it was guinea pigs from inside the warehouse to the parking lot outside right before I decided to try it myself. I never used larger animals other than myself as I didn't need people from PETA and the whatnot knocking on my door. The only failed test was a missing grapefruit, he says. <laughs> it was 1998 by the time Mike decided to try the machine on himself. He states, my main concern was I'm bigger than a guinea pig. Though the animals always survived, I had no way of knowing what long-term effects were had on these little creatures since this had obviously never been done before and they couldn't tell me how much pain they felt, if any. Mike was not really concerned about the 3 million volts of electricity crackling beneath him. He was more concerned about falling. If his jump into the void failed, he would fall 60 feet to the concrete floor. Quote, I was mostly worried that my mass would be too much to jump and I'd simply fall to the floor and break my legs or my neck, end quote. That would put a damper on your day. Just just a little. I mean, how are you going to explain that? I just took a flying 60-foot leap off a cherry picker and hit concrete. Well, what were you trying to do? Oh, no, 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 I, no nothing, man. I was just, I just had this cherry picker in a warehouse. I wasn't trying to do nothing, man. Nothing. <laughs> nothing to see here folks nothing to see here so it's at this point that the article i found kind of says they kind of try to fact check and see if any of this shit that he's been spewing could make sense and of course they find northwest missouri state university physics professor david richardson phd and physical <laughs> chemistry professor rick toomey phd and they both doubt that the science that he is spewing would actually work. Quote, what he's basically produced is localized lightning, Richardson said. It will produce heat, but not enough in that localized area to produce the heat signature Mike is claiming. Another problem is that if this localized lightning produced a time vortex, these vortices would appear everywhere that lightning struck during a thunderstorm. 
Any phenomenon he could create with a transformer could be created with every lightning strike, Toomey said. There are also no current theories in physics that involve electricity and time travel. That's cause it's cutting edge, my man. That's why he's he is the madman Mike Markham. Nothing, Richard said, absolutely nothing is out there that involves electricity and time travel. The main problem with Mike's time machine, the professors said, is that it does not correspond with any current time travel theory. All the potential time travel involves gravitational effects and really high speeds, Richardson said. There's really no theory that includes electricity and gravity together. This, Toomey says, would be the holy grail of physics. Even if Mike had found this holy grail, Toomey anticipates other problems. Quote, when you look at the equations, I don't know if a biological system could maintain its integrity. I just can't imagine your nervous system can go through that and survive, end quote. Now, Mike expressed the same sentiments to the St. Joseph News Press in 1995, quote, with death a risk factor, I'm not ready to step into an electrically charged vortex. There's still some stuff I've got to iron out. Now, neither Richardson nor Toomey thinks that time travel will be ironed out anytime soon. Sure, we could wake up and time travel could be real, Toomey said, but these discoveries are not going to happen in our lifetime. We'll all be long dead before that. Or will we? It's the government. I think the government can do it. (laughs) (laughs) If anybody can, brother. It's the government. Now, quote, Mike said he's heard this before. I had a few inputs from a few, quote, career theoretical physicists that were listening to the Art Bell show, and each told me something different, he said. It was like getting a medical diagnosis from a doctor. Then getting a second and third opinion and being told something else each time. Too many unknowns, too early in this line of work to be sure. Mike likens time travel experimentation to building the first battery without knowing what it could do. You have to discover it yourself and experiment to see what else electricity can do. Similar situation. Well, it's time for Mike to make the leap. So Mike stood on the cherry picker in the Kansas City warehouse above the time machine. Two cylinders, the outer made of 24 insulated rings, the inner constructed of grounded copper mesh, acted as a strike point for the rotating electrical field. He looked into the four-foot-wide shimmering wave 60 feet off the floor and jumped. Quote, the heat signature Event horizon was held in the center of the inner cylinder with jumping into it equaling jumping through a horizontal tube, Mike said. He goes on to state the inner cylinder was only about five feet in diameter, so I risked hitting it if I panicked in midair and missed the target. I'm not afraid of heights, and it takes one heck of an amusement park ride to get my adrenaline pumping. But that was pretty spooky. That's because he didn't know if he'd be fried, crushed, or pulled apart, or if he'd materialize inside some solid object somewhere. But Mike didn't panic. He simply disappeared. Quote, from my point of view, it was like getting hit with a flashbang. A loud crack, thud, bright light to where you can't see, hear, or walk well for several minutes, but no permanent physical damage, he said. I'm sure the people that donated the equipment were quite worried as it 
probably looked like I was exploded into pieces just with no fleshy residue. When Mike regained his senses, he was in a farm field near Fairfield, Ohio, cold and hungry. Quote, the first thing I did was start walking when I could after freaking out once I realized I was in the middle of nowhere, he said. I eventually ended up in downtown Cincinnati at a homeless shelter. Since at first I couldn't even remember my own name, and slowly as my memory returned, I found a temporary job so I could leave the homeless shelter. Gradually, over the next few months, I got most of my memory back. It turned out that Mike had woken up in the year 2000, which is two years later than when he took the leap. Well, good thing why 2K didn't happen, because he wouldn't have been able to get back. No, it would just, he'd just been out there in the void for forever. <laughs> Quote, I was hoping for maybe five minutes ahead and up to seventy to 75 to 100 yards distance, but it ended up being a bit over two years and 800 plus miles. After Mike had saved enough money, he returned to Kansas City to retrieve the journals that he used to chronicle his experiments, inspect the machine, and figure out what had happened. What he found demoralized him. Quote, it was just an empty warehouse when I got back there, Mike said. To this day, I still don't know what happened. I'm guessing it was dismantled at some point, and the smaller parts were perhaps sold on eBay. After a week in Kansas City trying to remember the names of anyone who had helped him, he gave up and returned to his temporary job in Ohio. Quote, I'm sure Art Bell's listeners would be thinking that the men in black came and abducted everyone involved and put the parts in the Area 51. I tend to think this of the simplest explanation first, however. They all assumed I was dead after not hearing from me for two-plus years and were probably scared. I used to have videos documenting my progress, but those tapes disappeared along with my journals and everything else. In hindsight, I should have made copies and slept with them, but wasn't planning on disappearing for so long. Even though the disappearance should have attracted more attention than the occasional internet blogger wondering what happened to Mike, it didn't. Outside of the project, I was pretty much kept to myself, he said. Other than eat, sleep as little as possible, I seldomly left the warehouse. Mike had few interactions with people in Kansas City other than his donors, and he hasn't seen his mother since 1986. Quote, I was thinking of checking into missing persons and see if anyone there was looking for me soon after 1998. I canceled those plans after remembering I was on probation at the time and didn't check in with my parole officer for two years. That's no bueno. No bueno. After <laughs> after 13 years, I doubt police are looking for me. Otherwise, I think they'd have found me by now. Since Mike was paid in cash for most of his jobs, except for a short employment at a packing facility, taxes haven't been a red flag either. Quote, to the IRS, I've been an intermittent blip on the radar. His biggest regret is forgetting his donors. I can't remember the names of the people that helped build this project so I could look them up and explain what happened, he said. He goes on to state that my main hope is that they don't think I'm dead or worse, think I'm alive and most ungrateful person on earth after all their help. He remembers that one man donated $1,000 to cover court costs from the transformer theft, but I can't remember his name if my life depended on it. So what's old Mike doing today? Well, Mike's living off odd jobs, and depending on what article you read, he is either still in Ohio or 
The latest one I read is he is in Hawaii and has um, took up surfing. Now, that Hawaii article is literal surfing. The Ohio article says that he surfs the Internet and reads the occasional scientific journal. Quote, anytime you see the words closed time-like curves mentioned in a scientific journal, that is a code word for time travel as career scientists don't want to publicly talk about building time machines. It's not a good career move, he stated. He's also amused by the internet culture that has evolved around him from his two interviews with Art Bell. Quote, after doing a Google on myself just for kicks, I find it hilarious that there's a story among dozens of urban legends about me supposedly being found crushed and dead in the 1930s with a cell phone beside me. Don't know who that was, but it wasn't me. He's still not sure how he traveled in time, but he has an idea. Quote, this is just speculation at this point, but I'm guessing I moved through hyperspace. Think of that as a fifth dimension inside which the first four reside. So in simple terms, I move through space as well as time. Space and time are actually the same thing. Per relativity, 186,000 miles of space equals one second of time in oversimplified terms. Now, he's certain hyperspace exists because without it, he'd be dead. Although Mike had last attempted the travel 13 years ago from the last article that stated he was in Ohio, he did state if he could start experimenting again, he would. Quote, after I returned to Kansas City for a week and realized everything was gone, I was pretty disheartened and heartbroken. But if I had the funds, I would definitely try to pick up where I left off research-wise. Being older and wiser these days, and with some previous knowledge from trial and error, I definitely would try again. Right now, though, he's just maintaining on the basics of food, clothing, and shelter, so it's on the back burner. He says the silver lining in this is that my birth certificate says I'm 37, but biologically I'm 35 since I skipped over two years of the calendar. Mike Markham, according to the Google machine, last time I checked, like I said, had started a GoFundMe account to try to get off the islands of Hawaii and back to the mainland U.S. And that is the story of Mike Markham. So what do you think? You think he did it? Man, I want to, though. I really do. I want to believe that it's true, but that time travel is possible, but man, my brain just won't allow me to b- truly believe it. I think the, I think he's on the, the way he explains it with the dimensions and the hyperspace. I think that's cause there's a guy on YouTube that will cross your eyes. He says there's something crazy like 18 or 21 dimensions. And I follow him until we get past the fifth one. And then I'm like, no, I can't, I can't do this anymore. But anyway, I also think, the two scientists, I mean, I don't know. If somebody built a time machine and they were using electricity, just because someone had never thought to use electricity for time travel doesn't mean that it's not a vague. You know, them just throwing it away with just, oh, well, they're dealing with, he's doing electricity and there's no way that would work. Well, you pompous ass, maybe it would. You never know. I mean, anything's possible. It's just, I don't know. I would love for it to be true. What would have been cooler was if he was like, 
yeah, man, that was me in the 30s, but they got me out. <laughs> and, and I jumped back. Quantum leap. Now, we have another short little story about time travel, and this one, this one's a little, this one's kind of an urban legend as well. And I don't know. I mean, you think Mad Mike's an urban legend? I mean, they've interviewed him. He called in, you know. It's well, he, I meant the his fate is oh, a, the urban you. legend. Not that he's an urban legend at all. No, I've got, we'll post on our socials. He looks like he could be in like a death metal band. He's got long hair, a Fuchi, a Fu, Fu Manchui. But he's got some cool ass diagrams of what he thinks or what he built. And so I mean it's it's cool as shit, man. Yeah. So but yeah. This next one is about a man named Bob White, not the quail, but just Bob White. <laughs> What the quail? <laughs> yeah, you know there's heard a Bob White quail. Yeah, man, that's all that's around here is Bob White quail. I've never heard that before. Jesus, I'm gonna have to stop being your friend. We stopped that a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> this is the story of basically a spam machine, and Bob White was the man that is supposedly responsible for sending out 100 million emails to people to help him build a time machine. 100 million? 100 Good million Lord. people. How do you even get how do you even get that? Like I don't even see like a I don't even see like a program that would get that many. I, I don't know, man. I don't know. Now there's a little story I found on the internet that said this guy got a refreshing break from his run-of-the-mill uh, spam emails that r- routinely attacked his inbox. Instead of peddling mortgages, penis enlargement pills, or weight loss products, he got one straight out of a science fiction novel. The anonymous email offered $5,000 to any vendor capable of promptly delivering a collection of far-fetched gadgets for conducting time travel. Among the mysterious devices sought by the message's author were the, I can't say it without laughing, man, quote, Acme 5X24 series time transducing capacitator with built-in temporal placement. I mean, it sounds legit. I mean, if Acme makes it, you know it's legit. Yeah, I mean, it never steer, uh, steered Wiley Coyote wrong. No, or the little Martian alien. And he was also asking for a, quote, AMD dimensional warp generator module containing the GRC-79 induction motor. Modulator. The guy that got the email was actually a computer programmer living in, o- in Iowa who said he normally deletes dozens upon dozens of junk emails every day without even giving them a second chance. But this time he hit the reply button because he was curious, quote, It was just so weird that I had to respond. So I sent the guy a message saying I could get him what he wanted. By replying, this man is drawn into the strange world of a mysterious man some refer to as a time travel spammer. With a little... A spammer? Yeah. 
With a little clever Photoshop work, Dave created an online store offering a range of sci-fi items sought by the emailer Bob White. Months later, Dave even shipped by UPS an old hard drive motor disguised as a, quote, warp generator to the address provided by Mr. White. But when Mr. White gratefully acknowledged receipt of the parts a few days later and earnestly asked for help obtaining others, this man decides that he's got to end the charade. Quote, I expected him to tell me at that point that it was all a joke and he'd give me the punchline. Instead, I began to worry that Mr. White was, quote, a person challenged by reality and as such deserves our sympathy and support, end quote. Now, this man's hunch would turn out to be correct because an investigation into the Bob White revealed that the time travel spammer is dead serious about his quest for technology that can rewind time. And they, this spammer has left a trail of internet clues and those point back to a man named Robert Robbie Todino. He is the source of the time travel spam emails. In a telephone interview with Wired Magazine, the 22-year-old Robbie from Woburn, Massachusetts, admitted that he has sent, like I said, nearly 100 million of the bizarre messages since November of 2001. I mean, he's getting it. What's he sending, like 1,000 a day, 5,000 a day? It's got to be some sort of automated program. Oh, yeah. There's just no other one. Come on, man. It almost feels worthless now because the people who are monitoring me and my every move always seem to win. But it's the only form of communication I have right now, Robbie said. His father, Robert Todino Sr., worries that malicious users have preyed on the young Robbie's psychological problems and built him out of money. Quote, what bothers me is that some people are trying to sell him equipment and take advantage of him, Robbie's father said. He's invested a lot of money into this, and he's been hurt by it. But Robbie says that he is in perfect mental condition and very stable, and that the time travel technology he seeks is out there somewhere. Quote, a lot of people will say the stuff I talk about is crazy and out of this world, but I know for a fact that it's true and it does exist. Untrained minds may disagree with me, but they don't have access to the sources that I do. Be that as it may, young Robbie's recent spam not only appears to violate the laws of science, but it defies a 2001 legal action against him by the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. In August of 2001, the state's attorney general ordered Robbie Todino's company, RT Marketing, to stop sending fraudulent email advertisements for, quote, free government grants, and, quote, detective software. Under a assurance of discontinuance deal, the first anti-spam action ever taken by Massachusetts regulators, Robbie agreed to pay a $5,000 fine and halt, quote, misleading and deceptive spamming practices. Now, shortly after that, Robbie's first wave of time travel spam hit the old interwebs in November of 2001, when he used the AOL screen name Robbie0809 at AOL.com. 
AOL. Yeah, that dates it, doesn't it? Yeah, it absolutely does. He sent thousands of anonymous emails with the subject line, quote, time travelers, please help, end quote. The message appeals to anyone who was a, quote, time travel or alien disguised as a human and stated that the sender's life had been severely tampered with and he needed temporal reversion to correct it. In 2001, a three-page single-space message signed by someone named Robbie began appearing in many Internet users' inboxes. The email described how the email author had been drugged and poisoned as a child by a woman his father had dated. He said he needed a, quote, time traveler to help him, quote, take back what was stolen from him in the first place my entire life. Now, over the years, many Internet users have posted a time travel vendor to Robbie in his online conversations, and he would refer to himself himself, himself by aliases, including Bob White and Tim Jones. Now, some internet users have speculated on discussion boards that the sender is a sci-fi author in search of material, while others have suggested that the time travel messages are just a cunning way for spammers to harvest working email addresses. The most common assumption is that the unidentified author of the emails is just out for fun, and to play along, a couple of pranksters have created fake eBay auctions in response to the bizarre messages. Now, officials with the Massachusetts Attorney General's office said they have been monitoring Robbie's online activities to ensure compliance with the 2001 agreement. However, they could not and would not comment on any information they have gleaned to this point. Robbie would acknowledge that soon after being busted by the authorities in Massachusetts, he resumed sending his spam messages later that fall under the company name PK Marketing. Now, PK spamming would reach its peak Late in 2003, when Robbie broadcast millions of messages advertising, quote, free cash grants at a site called grantgivewayprogram.com. Despite a stated desire to conceal his identity to, quote, avoid the spammers, Robbie has done very little to separate himself from the PK marketing name. For example, the company's federalfundingprogram.com site was listed as a contact address for more information in the July messages seeking a dimensional warp generator. A subsequent email message broadcast across the Internet instructed recipients to, quote, teleport the DWG to a set of geographic coordinates in Woburn at 3 p.m. on July 28th. The message apparently prompted several people to convene near the drop-off spot, but nothing of interest was reported. Or was it? Did he go back in time and make sure that it was somewhere else? <laughs> <laughs> now, Robbie believes that if he hadn't have been, if it hadn't have been for an invention by the quote conspiracy, he might finally have had his hands on a time travel machine. He goes on to state, there are forces that are constantly monitoring and anyone who tries to send something to these coordinates will get it blocked. But certain intergalactic couriers have the means to deliver the stuff to me and I'm pretty sure if I pursued it, I could get something out of that, end quote. So we've got two time travel stories there. One, the time traveling spammer, which uh, without... I mean, that, there's hardly anything out there about 
Like if you type in Bob White spam email, there's literally very few articles. So yeah, I couldn't find anything without and it was my idea. I heard it on a YouTube thing and I was like, man, we need to cover this. And then I couldn't find anything without really, I didn't really look for Robbie Totino Todino. Um, but I don't know his, you know, with his dad saying that he's, they're preying on his mental ability. I think he's, he might be on the spectrum. That might be an easy way to put it. Like, I think he wholeheartedly believes that he was poisoned and that if he can get his hands on these certain things, he can build a time machine and get back his life back, basically. But please let us know if you have any other time travel requests because I do think that there is some interesting things out there. There are... Now, there's the big ones. There's that guy that claims that he was at Montauk and they sent him back and he's in the foreground of the Lincoln giving his Gettysburg address. Cause it's a little boy with shoes or a coat too big or something like that. If you've not looked into that, I just gave you something to look into. The Montauk experiment gets a little urban legend ish. And then satanic panic also plays a thing into that one. Of course. You know, it was, of course, it went on back then. But there's some, there are some cool little time travel things out there. There's also those little videos out there that kind of show people walking around at, at certain times. Like there's one, you know, the lady using a cell phone back in the, what was it, the 30s or 40s at some kind of amusement park. And then someone filming Tyson with an iPhone when he fought one of the first couple of fights. So there's some cool shit out there. And then, you know, there's that whole thing about blinking in and out of this reality. Like I stated at the beginning of the episode, we've got a YouTube or a, not a YouTube, but a Instagram reel out there where this car just appears out of nowhere and then it hits its brakes. And then, you know, there's several of those types videos out there from, I think one of the most famous ones is when that guy's turning left in Russia or out that way and that car just rams into him out of nowhere. So I'm like you though. I want to believe Madman, the Mike Markham did it, but that would be my luck. I would do it and then I would jump so far ahead that people think I'm dead and then they would just dismantle everything and I wouldn't know who the hell I was. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a it's a good story. It ain't. It I mean, really it, it checks off a lot of boxes about how shit could go sideways if you do jump that far ahead. Yeah, it entertained me. I was very entertained by it. Am I funny? <laughs> do I amuse you? <laughs> Am I like a clown? <laughs> All right. So let us know what you think about the time travel stuff, and I would love to you know, find some more obscure things. Recommendations. Uh, I was told by one of our followers that we did a great job on the Kelly Day Williams episode and that not Williams. I apologize. I apologize. I apologize. And I meant to start this episode off by 
an apology too. Yes, like an idiot, I did say, and I did not fact check it. I just found it in one area. I did say that the detective in the Kelly Day Wilson, Sergeant Brown or Detective Brown had committed suicide. That is not true. He is alive and well. And one of my our listeners pointed that out and said that if you are interested in the deeper cut of that episode to look for Devil Town podcast. It is currently on episode five. I think it's going to have 10 episodes. It's by, who is it by? Imperative Entertainment. So it's very well produced, big budget. So, but um, the first two episodes are, I think just over 30 minutes long. Yeah, they're 35 minutes long. And then uh, episode four and five are just over 45 minutes long. So if that is a thing that you were interested in, the Kelly Day Wilson, I'm recommending that Devil Town podcast. And let us know what you think. What you got for a uh, recommendation there, bub? Well, I've been, I, my girlfriend got me interested in uh, the, uh, the show Ghosts. It's pretty funny. I kind of like it. If you don't know, it's on CBS and, Amazon Prime and Paramount Plus and all kinds of other stuff. It's a pretty good show. I've been watching it. It's pretty funny. I do like something I don't have to think a lot in. Yeah, that's, yeah, bingo. What you're looking for. Yeah. <laughs> we may be looking at doing a, where are they now, a couple of our cases. Yeah, some of them have been solved or some, I mean. Yeah. We never did the um, the two girls in Ohio. Ah, oh, hell! They got they just arrested a guy for that Delphi oh, murders. Oh, the uh, Delphi, Delphi yeah. murders, yeah, yeah. We never did do that one, but and I think the reason I didn't want to do it is because True Crime Garage had done I think six or eight different episodes. Yeah, they did a bunch. That's right in. Um, the colonel's wheelhouse. I mean, he's deeply invested in that story. And anytime there was something released, they did, would do an episode on it. And they just do a, a much better job. Plus, they live up there. And I think they live real close to Delphi. So it was... Yeah, they're in Ohio, for sure. Well, it's Delphi, Indiana. But yeah, I think where they live, they're close to Delphi, Indiana. Yeah, but Oh, is it? Is it? Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. I'm sorry. But that's one reason I never really pursued it. And But yeah, we... uh we got a couple of cases that we need to update, and uh, so look forward to that. We got the holidays coming up. We have a couple of cases that recommend maybe releasing around Christmas time with the old ho ho ho. Oh, who would know? Not me. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, well, coach, you got anything else? Oh, you know I don't. Uh, deuces. <laughs> <laughs>